This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This is David. Welcome back behind the velvet rope. How is everybody doing today? Let's just get right into it because we are so thrilled to be joined by the one, the only, Mr. J. Manuel. How are you? I'm good. Sorry. That was, that was my dog barking in the background. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm looking at you, so that's not you in case it is. No, it wasn't. Sorry about that. What's going on? How are you today? I am great. It's, um, you know, it's, we're, we're in fall. Where did the whole spring summer go? I, I just don't even know, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful day. So uh, I feel great. Where, where are you? Are, you're not in New York anymore, are you? Uh, no, I'm just outside the city at my home in Connecticut. God, everyone lives in Connecticut now. <laughs> I'm, yeah, like, I think every- <laughs> I'm like originally from Connecticut, but I know like Christian Siriano lives in Connecticut. Everyone's living in Connecticut now. Yeah, Christian's literally like 12 minutes from me. <laughs> Do you love living in Connecticut? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Um, you know, pre kind of quarantine, it was just my place to kind of escape to because you're always traveling, you're always in the city, you're always somewhere else. So, uh, but with quarantine, it's great to just kind of be here, have a lawn, have space. Uh, this is actually where I wrote my book. So, I mean, we're sitting in my office right now uh, as we're, we're chatting, and um, this is the room that I worked. I needed the quiet. <laughs> we're going to talk about the book. Okay. We, I mean, the wig, the bitch, and the meltdown. I mean, we just... Well, listen, here's the thing, and we'll get into it when we talk about the book. I want to start a yeah. little bit further back, but I figured, you know... I'm a professional. I'm going to read like a chapter, maybe two chapters. I'm going to do a little research. I'm going to, you know, like, listen, that's enough. I couldn't fucking put this book down. I read the (laughs) entire thing. I loved this book. Really, I'm not kissing your ass. It was so good. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm glad that you read it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's the crazy ride, right? It kind of goes off the rails. And there are things that people, what I've, the kind of, the, the most exciting response I've received from people, and I can see it in your face, you seem genuinely excited, um, is that I think people thought the book was going to be one thing. It's meant to be this laugh out loud piece, blah, blah, blah. But then it kind of really goes somewhere else because there's a real gravitas to the piece. There's like these kind of, I really wanted to focus on these really important kind of themes and tropes and discussions that we're having today in 2020 uh, and, and it's ironic because I wrote this a couple of years ago, but yeah, I, I wanted to, I, I wrote the book with the intention of this, uh, metafictional mechanism that really kind of blurs the lines and breaks the fourth wall purposely for the reader to kind of jolt out of the book and examine the relationships in their lives. And that, that was my idea for this. It's so, that's why it's so good. We're going to, and I mean, we're going to get into that because I have so much to say about the book and like that aha moment, a couple aha moments. So I, <laughs> I, I thought it was really good. 
Okay, awesome. How did you come up with this title, though, before I take you back to your beginnings? Like, where did this title come from? <laughs> yeah, well, if you want to know the honest answer, um, when I was writing the book, it had a different working title. I knew it wasn't the title. It was, it was good. I thought it was kind of clever, but it wasn't the right title. Uh, and of course, I'm not sharing that because it wasn't the right title. But then ultimately, I had an amazing writing mentor. I did write this book myself. When I started it, though, I thought like many other, you know, many people actually, especially people in, in front of the camera, they hire ghostwriters. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I've got to do all this work because it's going to be very specific. And so I, I, you know, arced out the story. I laid everything out. I mean, in detail, I, I, I interviewed with two different psychologists because I really wanted these interesting character studies because these, this really ensemble group of characters are, they're quite fascinating. And I wanted to kind of look at why people might react a certain way within a certain kind of pressure cooker situation. I did all this work. I wrote it all out. Then I shared it with a friend of mine who's a one-hour script writer. All my writing, I said, do you think this is enough to give to a writer? She called me. She goes, Jay, would you just write the damn book? You're a writer. And I said, but you know, writing nonfiction is one thing. I think a lot of people, it's a lot of work, but a lot of people feel comfortable finding their voice there. But with fiction, you know, um, this, this literary world is so subjective and so ultimately, I, I decided I am going to do the writing myself, but I, I had a great writing mentor. And so getting back to the title, you know, we, she loved the first, I gave her my whole first draft. She loved it. She had some really great advice um, about even kind of, I told the story with flashbacks and then we switched it to kind of going a little more linear and playing around, which she just told me, just put your book in chronological order real quick as an exercise. And I did. And we liked that. And then basically I would go away, work on a draft, and then I would send it to her and she was in the UK and we would kind of talk on FaceTime and literally probably like, I'd say about four or five drafts in, you know, it was really, the, the book was feeling really polished. And then we just got into this discussion and she just very abruptly said, now let's talk about this title. I said, well, it's not really the final title. And we got into this, I won't say it's an argument. It was like this heated debate. It was kind of fun. And, um, and so ultimately, where the debate went to is like, well, I know the title has to be kind of illustrate some of the main turning points of the book. So I said, kind of like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, except in this case, it's like the wig, the bitch, and the wardrobe. And I went, but it's not about wardrobe. It's really centers around this meltdown. And that's how the title was born, really. And was she like, aha, that's perfect. Just don't think of anything else. Yeah, that was, and she's very picky. And I mean, she's just, so she reacted to that title when we had this discussion or <laughs> slash argument, it was kind of fun. And, uh, and then she said, no, that's it, that's it, that's it. And so I was like, oh, wow. And so when I presented my, like, my submission draft to my agent and everything, everyone was like, wow, because like, no one saw anything. So they're like, the title. Uh, and, and I think it's, you know, look, it, it, it seems somewhat salacious. So people see the title, they make assumptions about around what it means, especially the word, the bitch, but the bitch really, you know, for those listening and I, you know, I, I don't want to spoil it, but ultimately it, it speaks to a situation, not a person. And I think people are thinking that that's speaking about a person, but it's really like, you know, we say life's a bitch, payback's a bitch. That's what it's referring to. It's not actually referring to a person. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. I could see that. That that's applicable too. Yeah. So where are you from originally? Like where are you from? 
<laughs> yeah. uh, that's so my where, that's my casual segue. Your casual segue. Well, yes. I was I was actually born in um, Springfield, Illinois, but I don't remember it because I I was that's just where I was born. And when my parents, when I was um, three years old, they moved to Toronto. So I grew up in Canada, but there's so much misinformation on the web. People say I was born and raised in Toronto. I was actually born in the states. But I grew up in Toronto, and I, I moved to New York at, uh, when I was 19. I went to NYU. So, And growing up, like, from an early age, was it always, you know, something with fashion? Like, did you always know, like, you know, what you wanted to do? <laughs> I think, well, it's one of those things, and you have to go back to, you know, kind of, like, that time. There was no social media. Uh, you know, a lot, really, kind of the the, the gateway to fashion was the television show fashion television that came on every Saturday with Jeannie Becker it was around the world. Um, I mean, it was, she was, she was incredible. And I mean, I loved fashion. I was, you know, it was a passion of mine. And if I really go back to my room teenage teenage Jay's room, I had a few of my favorite bands on my wall, but really one wall was just papered with the most iconic uh, fashion imagery that you've ever seen and you know and it's really interesting because when I look back and I'm, I have a photographic memory and I think in my mind I see remember those obsession ads at the time those were you know we think of the Herberts ads the you know the Richard Avedon the Scavulo ads all these like major campaigns and I remember thinking it was just like another world it was a fantasy uh, but you know we often you know when when we kind of create these kind of walls that that are our inspirations and our passion we're really saying something to the universe like this is where we want to be a part we want to be a part of it you know my hobby in high school was photography people don't know that and i actually have never even mentioned this but when i was 18 my photography teacher uh because i was the tutor in the class for people's darkroom skills etc and um she said you know you should enter your work into this competition and I actually won the Canadian National Kodak competition at 18, which was like a really big deal. And still I was denying I wanted to be part of this business, but I, I was, you know, always um, very kind of, you know, taken by the world. But what really became reality was that I did get to work with all these people that I had on my wall from not only different celebrities and models, which I worked with all of them that were on my wall, to the photographers like Richard Avedon, Annie Leibovitz, Herb Ritz, um, Scavulo. I'll admit it, as important as it is for me to eat healthy and put the right nutrients into my body and hydrate, I'm really not great at it. I'm always on the go. I'm never making that a priority and I'm always hungry. This was a real problem until I discovered 310 Nutrition. I love 310 Nutrition's water hydrators. You just add them to water and they make your water taste so much better. They also have refreshing lemonade mixes. My personal favorite, they're all in one shakes. I love their caramel sundae, their vanilla cake, the shamrock cream. I drink one of these shakes and it totally satisfies my hunger. They're low in fat and low carbs, which I love. They also satisfy my carb craving. But don't take my word for it. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code VELVETROPE and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 off your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and it's easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products you know you'll use. Go to 310nutrition.com and use the code VELVETROPE right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310nutrition.com and use code VELVETROPE. 
Um, I, I worked on some of the last shoots he did before he died. So I got to work with these incredible creative visionaries of which I learned so much from. And that is like the classroom of life. And you can't get better than having the opportunity to work with people like that in the industry. Yeah, I mean, they're icons. I talk to so many people on this show that when I run into someone or have them back on the show and they remember my name, I'm always blown away. It's the little details. And when it comes to sheets, the only place I turn is bowl and branch. Why? Because they pay attention to the little details. Bowl and Branch was formed by a husband and wife team that set out to give sleepers more choices for high quality sheets at a fair price. And boy, did they ever accomplish that. What I love is the variety of colors. I chose the pewter mainly because it goes best with my apartment. The sheets are so elegant. They look and feel so sophisticated, but the price is so reasonable. That's why I chose them. They're hundred percent organic cotton. They are made toxin free. And what I love is they get softer with every wash sheets that look high end, sophisticated and elegant, but are affordable. Sign me up. And that is why I did sign up. These are the only sheets I will now use. And you guys need to check this out. So listen, you can try them worry free for 30 nights with free shipping and returns to experience the best sheets you've ever felt, choose Bowling Branch. And because you're listening to this podcast, you get an exclusive 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code VELVET at BowlingBranch.com. That's Bowling Branch, B-O-L-L and B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code VELVET. Yes. Who, who are the, some of your favorite bands that you had on the wall? <laughs> it's interesting. Um, like I was really um, into, when I was in high school, this is going to really show my age. I was really into Depeche Mode and, you know, every, you know, the, the groups of the time, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of that. Um, I think I don't, I didn't have an image of, but, you know, of course I love Madonna, but I didn't have like a poster of her or anything like that. Um, but, you know, just all like the, you know, George Michael, all that. I mean, yeah, I'm 48, so now that really shows you. No, I. It's because I had posters on my wall of like Culture Club, Madonna. So I'm showing my age now too, Cindy Lauper. Okay, so. so you know what? Someone asked me the other day because when you talk about your age, like we were the generation that went from tapes and records to CDs, and I remember getting my first like. Do you remember everyone used to call them ghetto blasters? You had a ghetto blaster that had the CD like drawer that was a big deal i mean today kids are like cds basically what everything's a download but um yeah my first cd was actually music for the masses interesting no i say all the time i'm like i could fake my age to an extent and then when i start talking about music <laughs> it's it's You're like, all it. right because kids today are like what it's a pesh yeah, mode yeah. like what's that and i'm like all right i don't know what to say yeah. to that so doing what you you know with all this, you know, fashion and everything, like you kind of, did you always know you were going to end up in New York? Like you came at 19. Was that always your like New York, New York, New York? No, I wasn't. I never, it wasn't even a thought on my mind. And it's, I have a really interesting story of how I ended up in New York. The short, the long and short of it is really, um, people don't know that I was um, a classically trained musician. I went through the Royal Conservatory of Canada. I had a private voice teacher at the age of like 13. Um, I was in the Mendelssohn Choir. 
you know, I traveled the world performing. And um, when I was, I guess, in 11th grade, 12th, no, like 12th grade, I guess, because we, we did also OAC levels after that. So basically, my voice teacher had an opportunity to, she, she started, I guess, working with a voice teacher in New York City, and she had the opportunity to perform for one of the assistant conductors of the Metropolitan Opera. Um, she basically said to me, you know, I'd love for you to sing for my teacher, blah, 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 blah. we should go to New York. Now, growing up, we traveled a lot, and we flew through New York as a family, but I never was in New York City proper. And so, um, you know, at like 17 years old, you know, my, my, you know, my voice teacher said to my, my parents, like, I'd love to take them on this weekend trip, blah, blah, blah. I want them to perform for my voice teacher. So my parents said, great, sure. And I, I, I went to New York. I flew with her. And I remember arriving in New York City going, oh, my God, this is actually where I have to be. And I had applied to university. I'd been accepted to University of Toronto. I, you know, I had this whole science background. I thought I was going to go into sciences, even though I had all this passion for arts, you know, I guess I was in the mindset that if you go into the arts, you're going to be poor, you'll never make money. And fashion, who makes money in fashion? is kind of how I thought. No one told me this. I just made the assumption. Um, and, uh, and so when I arrived in the city, I was like, oh my gosh, this is where I have to be. And I remember that weekend we went to the Metropolitan Opera and we were all in like, it's, and I just was like, this is where I have to be. I don't know how. So I actually performed for that same coach she performed for and her voice teacher. And they said, oh my God, you've got such a great voice. So basically for that last year of high school, every third month I would fly to New York with my voice teacher and do these voice lessons. And I was like, what is going on? Like, what am I doing? Um, and then literally right, probably like three months out of starting you know, my first semester at University of Toronto, and it was right when the tuition was due, I said to my parents, oh my God, I think I want to be in New York. Like the worst time to, to say that, right? And because I was born in the States, it was very easy for me to move to the United States. So, you know, my parents said, well, if you want to go to school in the States, we would have sent you there. If you want to go to New York, it's like too late to apply to school. So we applied to NYU, but I wouldn't be able to start till like the spring semester. But because I was in Canada and we do a, a whole year of schooling for university after grade 12, that actually counted as my freshman year. I was accepted to NYU and I went right into sophomore year, but I did it in the spring. So I came to the city in the fall and I did all private voice lessons and coaching and all this kind of stuff. And that's, that's how I ended up in New York. And were you just like, okay, like this makes sense and everything well, I, I thought. You know, it's interesting. When I honestly go back there in my mind and my body, I remember thinking, what did I do? Like, I mean, it was a really bold move. I, I mean, just up and just go. I knew nobody. Um, you know, my parents, you know, I, I'm very blessed. My parents wanted to, they said they would support both my sister and I in our first degree and da, 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 da. Uh, you know, it was a great, it was an incredible opportunity, but it was scary at the same time. And, you know, I obviously found my way and, and, and had, you know, these great opportunities, you know, presented to me but I think if I had to think it through as an adult again uh I it was a really bold crazy move that made no sense 
Yeah, um, like if you're young, just out. coming to New York, it's kind of a big thing if you're not from this area. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then you went to school and then you graduated. So talk to me about like your early career after you graduated. Well, I have like, you know, it's, I had this whole weird transition because I was focusing as, you know, a musician, opera singer, you know, that was kind of my world. However, my world into kind of the, the, the real transition into the world of fashion, photography, et cetera, is really through music. And at the time, I really had to focus on, was this just part of my journey? Am I supposed to be somewhere else? Because I was like denying this passion for fashion. But when I tell people who the first celebrity I ever shot with, it is the most bizarre scenario. And it, again, it's through my first voice teacher. So, you know, everyone has a unique journey. My first voice teacher um, had an opportunity to sing for and was cast in Martin Scorsese's Age of Innocence with Michelle Pfeiffer, Daniel Day-Lewis, Winona Ryder, blah, blah, blah. So when, you op when that film opens, my first voice teacher is the person that you see, actually. And, um, and it's her voice and everything. So the studio needed to shoot imagery of her out of character. So they sent her to a really big photographer in New York City who shot a lot of the big, um, like Sony classics, Met Opera recordings, all of that. And um, since it was just a passion of mine and she's a gorgeous woman, but she had no flair for getting herself together. She's like, oh, can you help me get ready for my shoot? I was like, oh my God, sure. I totally come with you. So I went, kind of glammed her up, and they did this, this, this amazing shot of her. And the photographer, I was so naive. I was so young and silly. He was like, you know, you're really talented at this. Um, have you ever thought, like, you know, I'd give you my card. I could hire you. And, you know, and I look back at the scenario. He must have just laughed at me because I was like, oh, no, I'm an opera singer, you know, blah, blah, blah. I go to school, yada, yada. And then he gave me his card anyway and kind of chuckled. And then, uh, you know, going back to school, you know, we always need like extra pocket cash. So a couple months later, actually, I called him up. I said, I don't know if you remember me, but, um, you know, I am available. I could put together a kit because I had no kit, no, nothing. And I basically said, but this is my class schedule, yada, yada. And I think he was totally amused by me. So he called me. I did, the first shoot I did for him was with a, for a famous soprano. No one would know who she is, a Russian soprano. But at the end of that shoot, he said to me, I'm shooting a CD cover for the Metropolitan Opera. I'd like to hire you for to put the subject into character. And I was like, oh yeah, sure, I could do that. Um, and they said, yeah, we're shooting Luciano Pavarotti, who was like an idol of mine growing up as a young tenor opera singer. But it was just like the most random person um, larger than life character. I mean, probably the most nervous I've ever been. And I've worked with everyone from JLo to, oh my gosh, I've never been more nervous than I was working with him. And uh, yeah, and so that's roughly how I got into that world. And then an agent saw my work and, you know, it just all kind of went from there. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash velvetrobe. Listen, life is full of stress. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. Life is stressful. You may not be feeling down and out and depressed or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress level is high, like mine, your temper is shorter than usual, like mine, or even if you're starting to feel strained in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. Unload the stress and get it out. 
Talk to someone who's completely unbiased and who's not going to judge you or take sides. If there's stuff you can't tell your friends or family, this is the place to do it. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain for it. Try it out. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Behind the Velvet Rope listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash velvet rope. That's B. E T T E R H E L P dot com slash velvet rope. Betterhelp.com slash velvet rope. So it, that was kind of the first. That was kind of my step into acknowledging that I wanted to be a part of telling stories and narratives through images and and then really through my work, a lot of my clients you know, would ask me my opinion on things. And that's how I started even creative directing. And because I had a whole digital background and I started doing post-production work, that's how I ended up, you know, even creative directing a lot of campaigns for major companies, et cetera. And then you were, you, you loved it. You were living the New York dream, trying to make it, making it and loved it. Yeah, I did. You know, I, I think for me, when I look back at it, uh, you know, I'm very kind of, nostalgic and I look at that young kid who was walking around with his portfolio and et cetera. I mean, I just didn't take no for an answer. Um, there were, again, there was no social media, you know, kids today have the ability to share their work with the world. And there are so many talented creatives out there. And I love to comment on people's posts and, 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 you know, support their creativity because, you know, in, at our, the time I was in the world, you know, it was, there was no way of getting your work out there. You had to meet with creative directors and editors or your agent sent your book out and that was it. Um, and then your work was based on the tear sheets of like where your work was featured. I mean, it was just like this catch 22 thing. So my whole, you know, I feel like it was just like a goal of mine. I wanted to shoot like a cosmetics campaign. Um, and so I had done a lot of work. My book looked really great. And I remember my agent saying, oh, there's this huge Revlon campaign coming up. I'm going to send your book out to. Well, I wasn't hired. And I said, well, what's the feedback? Like, my work is great. I just was so angry I didn't get this job. And he said, well, the creative, the, the art director said, you have no cosmetic ads in your book. And I said, well, that doesn't even make any sense. Like, do you like the work or you don't? Like, how are you going to have a cosmetic ad if you're not hired for one? So I had just done this shoot with Bridget Moynihan, who's now an actress, but at the time she was a really big model. Um, and she still models today, but she's more of an actress. And, uh, and so we kind of clicked. So I said to her, I know you're the last person who would need to do a test shoot because she's on covers of magazines. But I said, I'd love to do this, like a cosmetic shoot, like kind of these mock ads. And I had a great photographer lined up. We're going to shoot it at Pier 59 Studios but we were going to make it look like a professional cosmetic ad. And she said, yes. So with a very recognizable face, like Bridget Moynihan, you know, I did these kind of faux cosmetic ads. They looked kind of like the Lancome ads of the time. And, um, and then we even shot product and we put the product in and retouched the logos off so that it looked like a generic, but high-end fashion 
kind of cosmetic ad. And we put these ads at the front of my book. They were all double page spreads. And I forced my agent to send it right back up to that creative director. And he asked to take a meeting with me. And he basically said, I am really intrigued that you went away and then created beauty ads. And uh, he said, just because of that, I'm going to hire you. And then my, that's how I got my first cosmetics campaign, which was for Revlon. Wow. Yeah. So how do you go from doing all of that? You're living your life, <laughs> living the dream. And how do you go from that to meeting Tyra? Um, actually, uh, the first time I, I you know, because I'd seen Tyra at events, but, but I bumped into her at the Reebok Sports Club, New York, and she was working out there, uh, but I didn't speak to her. It was interesting, but I always, it was this kind of interesting moment to kind of see the real her, not Tyra Banks glam. Because again, time, no social media. People always put out their brand image. That's all you saw was the brand. You never saw the real person. Unlike today, you know, we're, you know, on Instagram lives where, you know, we show the, you know, the, our, our kind of more unvarnished selves, so to speak, a lot of the time. But um, basically the first time I got to work with Tyra and she, she loves to tell this story as well, is that um, her makeup artist um, missed their flight or something. And she was in New York because she lived in LA at the time in her hotel and she had to get ready for the GQ Man of the Year Awards. And, um, her hairdresser at the time, who's still one of my closest friends, is uh, had said, well, you know, like Jay is this, you know, hot young makeup artist. He's working with everyone. He's worked with Iman. I'd worked with Naomi at the time, but he knew not to bring that up. <laughs> but like, like I'd worked with all these like major celebrities uh, and especially black celebrities. And he said, um, you know, you should work with him. So she had basically said, okay, I'll like try him out for free. Now at that time, I was an artist who got really paid my rate. So most people, especially today, you get these kind of, you know, um, millennials who would say, oh my God, if you're not paying me, I'm not showing up. But I, I really respected everything that every door she had kicked down and what she had done with her career. And I really wanted to work with her. So I was like, sure. So I went to her hotel room, did her makeup, literally, they call it a do and go, did her makeup. She left to the GQ Man of the Year Awards. I didn't go, packed up, went home. But she loved the way she looked and we just connected. And like the next week, I, I mean, I got a call to fly down to St. Bart's with her and work with her on Victoria's Secret. And that's how we just started working together pretty much consistently almost every week. And were you, you know, like, were you starstruck when you met her? Like you met all these other people. Like, do you, do you get starstruck now even? Like you've met everyone. No, I don't, you know, there's only a couple of people where I have felt, I will call it starstruck to an extent. Um, yeah, I guess because, you know, I worked in the world of kind of celebrity for so long as a makeup artist. And, you know, everybody, it's people, people don't realize is that the fame thing isn't a real thing. It's hype. It's just a mass of people recognize who you are. That doesn't make you anything different than everyone else. You know what I mean? So, and just because of the way I was raised, I never, you know, I, I never kind of get that way, but there are certainly people that I really admire their talent. Um, you know, like Glenn Close was one of those people that I remember the first time I interviewed her on the red carpet. I, you know, I just, cause I'm just 
I was just in awe of her for years. And I did have a movie moment actually with, um, <laughs> with, uh, with, with, with Jennifer Lopez the first time I worked with her because when I arrived at the Four Seasons in New York and she was in the, the penthouse suite, you know, Orbe was in there kind of prepping extensions for her, what have you. I showed up on time when I was supposed to, someone let me in and I walked into the bedroom where I was supposed to set up and she had just come out of the shower. She was in a robe. The sunlight was streaming in. This is literally out of a movie. I'm not making this up at all. Sunlight was streaming in the window. She had just come out of the shower. Her hair was soaking wet. She'd laid down on the bed. Her skin was glistening and her, like, her skin is perfection. Like she has no pores. And I walked in and it was like, hi, I'm Jay. And that's how I met Jennifer the first time. That was like a little bit of like a crazy moment because you could just pipe in the music and it was a movie moment, right? And she's one of the most genuine, lovely people, you know, I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I can picture this, but like, I don't, she's laying on the bed and she's just like, okay, go wait in the other room or like. No, no, no. They told me to come in to set up. She's like, hi, nice. Like I put my bags down and I went over and like shook her hand. I'm like, so what are we doing today? What's the look? Da, 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 da. Just dove right into work. But it was like such a, such a surreal moment. That's kind of a surreal moment. I mean, it's <laughs> Jennifer Lopez. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know. So how do you, so you meet Tyra and, you know, you, now you're together at Victoria's Secret. So how do you go from that to like, hey, let's do a show together? Well, um, well, you read my book. So yes. in the book, in chapter three, it's called A Show is Born, <laughs> the chapter. Um that, because a lot of people ask me because my book is, you know, obviously inspired by my life on top model, but in the entertainment industry as a whole. But, you know, people read the book and then the first thing they say is, oh my gosh, I couldn't, I knew there were these Easter eggs. I knew this was real. This was real. But then I was wondering, was this real? Was this real? Did this happen? Did this happen? You know, and I love that people were, were struggling with trying to determine what is fact and fiction. However, a little part of kind of fact, I'll give this away. It's not a big spoiler for the book. But in that chapter three, the phone call moment is kind of how it started. Because literally, she she lived in LA. And, and at the time, you know, you know, we did have cell phones. But if we knew people were at home, we'd always call the landline, right? So my phone rang at six in the morning. And I'm thinking, I looked at the caller ID, and it was her. And I'm like, it's three in the morning. So I thought something was wrong. So I answered the phone, I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong? And she said, I've got it, I've got this idea. This is what I wanna do, oh my gosh. And she just, I remember like rattled the top line of doing this model show. And um, that's kind of how it started. That was my first time hearing about it, was this very, very early morning phone call, which is, as you can see, I play a bit, a bit of that in the book. Yeah, and that's why, and I'll get into it in a few minutes more. I mean, I was one of those people who was like, wait, like, this isn't really real, but it is. I mean, I think that's what made the book so great is like, it could all be exactly real, but it's not a real book. So it's, I mean, it's not, it's a well, story. It's fiction. Yeah, and it's you know fiction. What? Do you, and do you honestly, um, you know, I love to read and I love great fiction. And I was, you know, I, that's why I was really intimidated by writing something that is fiction. But I, I did borrow a page, pardon the pun, out of, kind of like out of Dan Brown's books. And I've read all of his books, even the ones that are not as well known. And what I love about Dan Brown's writing is that it's extremely fast paced. You're never bored. 
which is the type of reading that I typically like to read. Like, I mean, I read all different types of, you know, work, but I love something that just keeps clicking along. And for my book, I think that works because I wanted there to be this sense of, you know, this, this pace that's so fast and then it almost becomes relentless because that machine behind these shows is relentless. It's seven days a week. It doesn't stop. And so I wanted that vibe. And then also what Dan Brown does so, so well, and he's very clever, is he weaves fiction around very real organizations, places, people, myths, science, you know? And so it makes you question, well, is this really fiction? Is it not? And I love that. Even even some, you know, I just, I just love, I just love reading stuff like that where even though I know it's fiction, I love that I'm questioning it myself. So absolutely in my book, there are Easter eggs for fans of the show that they'll go, they'll recognize those moments, but you don't ever have to have watched Top Model ever once to still get into this world. And, and then I think you'll still question what's reality and what's not. And, and that's why I have that kind of mind bender moment in the third act, which I, I'm so glad no one spoiled it online, but my agent says, and I'll just tease with this. First time she read it, she was like, this is like the black mirror for the literary world because it becomes very meta on meta on meta. And it's like really like twisted, but it's meant to make you think on purpose and then examine the world you're in. Yeah. And well, I thought, which now I think you just kind of answered this question. One of my questions was like, was it this conscious you know, we have a Christian Siriano in the story. We have a Heidi Klum. We have a Michael Kors. Like, I thought that was great. Like, you're re- referencing real people, but I'm like, wait, but this is fiction. So I thought, I mean, that was purposeful, right? I mean, which I thought was great. Oh, absolutely. Because I wanted, well, I think by using, you know, uh, recognizable names, like those names you re- mentioned and Coco Rocha, et cetera, I wanted people to get a sense that this world of Model Muse, so for those who who have not read the book, Model Muse is a fictitious reality competition model show. Uh, And, but I wanted people to recognize that that fictitious competition show existed now in the world of 2020, 2021, which is really where the book kind of lands. Um, There's actually one little nod to that, so you kind of know the date. But other than that, I wanted people to know it existed right now. That, that makes sense. And what about, so when you get this call, you know, to do this show, I mean, what was your reaction? Were you like, what? Like, why, you know, were you like, I don't know how to do a show. Did you think it was a good idea? Like, how does that go after you get this call? Honestly, <laughs> you, want the, you want the honest answer. Of course you do. Um, I didn't even think about that at all, if that makes sense, because you know, at that time, you know, Tyra said to me, she's like, oh, I'm going to just need your help. And of course you have to do my makeup and you're da, 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 da. It was like all these things. And I said, well, of course I'll help you. Um, you know, at that time, you know, I was producing shoots. I was doing all this stuff. And the way she described it, it was really this reality show capturing this world. So, you know, once, you know, season one was really, I mean, if, if people, if people knew how season one of Top Model was produced at the time, it's not how people cast and produce shows today. Everything is so well thought out. The sets are designed, there's rendering, like people are cast, screen tests, that's not how it was. I mean, at the time there were only two real reality shows on air, it was MTV's The Real World and Survivor had just started. That was it. There was no competition reality. There was no genre. 
you know, they didn't even call it reality. It just didn't, you know, it wasn't there. It wasn't, you know, it was just so new. So kind of the team of producers that were brought on to produce this show knew nothing about fashion. And within like, literally we're actually shooting. I, you'd think a lot was more planned out, but I remember being in one of these kind of very small huddle meetings, like, oh, we're supposed to do a shoot tomorrow. And the, the producer who was supposed to be the segment producer for photo shoots said, I couldn't find a photographer and I don't know what we're gonna do. And Tyra looked at me and was like, who can you call? What can you do? And I'm like, well, I know the manager of Pier 59 Studios. We can easily get that. And I know so many big photographers, I'll just call somebody up. And that's what I did. And then like three shoots in, Tyra in a meeting said, Jay's got to be like the director of photo shoots. He should be the creative director. And so if you actually watch in season one, which was so like low rent, I mean, ugh, the judging room, which was a hotel suite with blue pipe and drape. I mean, crazy. I mean, literally they, you saw my role turn into the creative director over that season. So by the time we're in Paris, it's just me showing up going, hey girls, so today, da 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 It's like my role was just kind of born on TV. And then by the second season, I was actually in charge of it behind the scenes. So they gave me a budget per shoot and da 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 And I just took over all the creative. I hired all the photographers, hair, make. I was in charge of all the creative talent. I was the one who actually brought Nigel to the fold in season two. Wow. Yeah. Did, did you have any like feelings when your role was transitioning before our very eyes like onto the camera, you know? Um, I didn't really think about it. I mean, I kind of was on camera even beforehand because they were shooting like reality moments and I was there, you know, doing these shoots and doing the girls makeup and at the makeovers with Tyra and all that stuff. So it didn't really feel strange. It was just different. They were like, okay, you're like taking over the shoots. So now you set them up. So it's not like I wrote a script. I mean, people think that, I don't know what they thought. Like I, there were no cue cards. There's no script. It was just like, the girls would walk in and I'd say, hey girls, so today, and it was just me talking. Were you totally, you know, we see Pablo Michaels in the book, you know, was stressed out in the beginning. Like, you know, there's a lot going on. Were you just like, you know, we're faking it till we make it to your point, like in over your head, like, oh my God, we're working seven days a week. Like, what are we doing? Um, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was definitely an, an insane pace it was a weird world we were just everyone was finding their footing in the beginning actually it felt it felt relentless but we it felt like this we you could feel the magic in the air although tyra even admitted at the time she thought maybe we'd do a second season that's it you know no one knew it would become this global phenomenon um but, uh, you know, it, it definitely, I think in the book, I wanted to kind of make it feel a little more extreme in the beginning for Pablo. I didn't feel like stressed out to that degree, although there were a lot of insane things sometimes asked of me and like, oh, we need help. And it was just always like, why? Everyone was just asking for help. I mean, <laughs> I was not hired to do this. It was just interesting season one, for sure. What was like the best and worst part of the early days? The early days. Uh, <laughs> I mean, season one, season two, season three. You know, the, be the best part was really, honestly, was, you know, by the time we got to season three, you know, the show was definitely, it, it, it just captured America. I mean, the show, the show was just huge very quickly. And it was really exciting, you know, seeing kind of creative come alive. Um, 
And for me, that was, that was, that was the exciting part. It felt like magic. It was like, oh my God, now it's on TV. And, and, you know, people weren't streaming. Obviously there was no streaming then. So it became very early on and we knew it, it became appointment television. So people were home, they watched that show when it came on and then they talk about it. And that was really exciting to kind of see kind of early on for sure. What was it like working with Janice Dickinson? Well, Janice was absolutely a riot. Um, one of the stories that <laughs> I've never really shared, you know, I had never met Janice officially until we were shooting this show. So I remember walking up, I guess she was doing a fitting or something. I, I can't remember. And I was walking into this, they gave like the, the judges different rooms to get ready in because we were in a hotel season one. And I knocked on the door and they said, come in. And I wanted to introduce myself. And she was in like this mini dress that had like payettes and it was like really short. And she's like, hi, come in. Oh my God. And then she literally took her dress all the way off like a t-shirt, threw it to the side. And she's like, don't you love my new tits? And that's literally the first line she gave me. I was like, wow. <laughs> you knew you were in for a ride then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was I mean... What about like Nigel Barker? Well, so Nigel, I brought to the show. So season one to season two, they knew the network wanted to make some changes uh, on the judging panel. They were looking at photographers. Um, Russell James, who a lot of people know, he's a very famous photographer, shoots Victoria's Secret. Um, and he's like, Russell is like the nicest guy. So handsome, so charming. And I've worked with him a ton. so. What the, the kind of a natural person for me to go to because they said to me, can you bring us a photographer? And they, they said they were partial to accents, you know, vary the network, you know, they, they love Anglophiles or anything that sounds like that. Um, but uh, so I went to Russell James who said, oh, reality television? Oh no, that would, no, that would ruin my career. He was like, you're so sweet. But I really pushed Russell like, like three times to do the show and he said, no. So, I realized a lot of kind of like established photographers, no one wanted to be a judge on a fledgling reality show. So Nigel was a former model who was trying to become a photographer. He didn't even have an agent and his kind of job at the time was doing test shoots for young models. And I met him through, a, you know, another, like a stylist actually. And so when I realized I couldn't get a, you know, a name on the show. I basically said, well, I'll take a meeting with Nigel. Can you? So I basically connected with them and said, can you come over to my apartment and we'll have a meeting for you know, about the show. So he came over, he was very formal. He had a blazer on. I was like, wow. And then we chatted. And then actually his screen test, I shot in my living room and I told him kind of how I wanted him to critique photos. And I literally picked up a coffee table book. I believe it was like Herb Ritz. And I said, I want you to flip through these photos and I want you to critique each photo. And I shot his screen test on my camcorder and um, I presented that tape to the network and that's how he got his job. Wow. So talk to me about, cause I mean, you decided to leave the show eventually. So talk to me about like the, you know, throughout the years, like the tension on the set, like your working relationship with Tyra. Well, I think what was, um, Tricky is like really when it got what uh, people are only now learning and, and I have talked about it in you know a few interviews and, and for the first time was that I had actually decided to leave the show after cycle eight. My contracts were done. 
So I was free and clear to leave. And, um, and you know, I've, I've kind of spelled out that whole story of what happened, you know, because I felt that I, you know, Tyra was a businesswoman, you know, and, and she always said, you know, let's always talk, not let's not talk to our people. So I spoke to her first, just to let her know that I was leaving the show. And she definitely, she just said, I'm disappointed, but she clearly shut off and down. Um, and so they had three months to, you know, screen test and cast people. And I do know a very well-known kind of fashion, we'll say type personalities that screen test for my role and uh, the network didn't, you know, find somebody. So basically two weeks out of production of cycle nine, they, I got a, a call from my attorney at the time and was asked, could I come back and just do one cycle just while they continue to look? And I had made other, I had another commitment and I said I couldn't. And then basically what was intimated is I would not work for the studio again if I did not do this favor. So it was somewhat of a threat. And they, you know, and I, and I was at that time in my career where things were shifting and I was about to, and I, I hadn't yet, but I eventually ended up signing with CAA and changing all my representation and all of that. But at the time I still felt like, oh my God, this could like ruin me. I could never work for like a major studio. And, and there was fear there. Um, I know. Well, we're about to get into what happened after Jay stayed, what his relationship with Tyra was like after that. What happens when eventually he did leave America's Next Top Model? What's his status of his relationship today with Tyra? I'm always curious who still speaks to Tyra. What he thinks about Janice Dickinson more and all the other top model stuff. Plus, let's not forget Jay has a whole career outside of top model. I want to talk about red carpet reporting. Jay has met everybody. We talk about the iconic silver hair. So listen, who better than to talk to from America's Next Top Model than Jay Banuel? Stay tuned for part two coming very soon. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones and the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, we're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're Behind The Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon. Because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind The Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.